Father, as we prayed last week, we we don't simply want to understand um, the Lord's Prayer better, but we want you to help us pray it, for it increasingly to become a part of our lives, part of who we are, our identity. We pray that we might be shaped by it. And so as we look at these next three complicated but so simple truths in this prayer this morning, shape us, soften our hearts and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, again, just to say, there were postcards last week with the Lord's Prayer on it. I'm sure you know the Lord's Prayer or have Bibles with it in, but if it's going to help you and you stick it in your pocket or you stick it in a Bible, do um, grab there are some more at the back and we've got lots more in the office too, so um, don't worry if they look like they're in short number. Um, so we're continuing our series in the Lord's Prayer. And last week, if you remember, we, we were thinking about simply who we were praying to. Four very simple words. Uh, our Father in heaven. And we, we remembered our, we said it's a community thing that we pray together. This is a corporate prayer, a family prayer. It's not a prayer primarily that we pray in isolation. It changes our understanding of praying and how we pray. But we're praying to our Father. So we said it's, it's primarily not a, not a religious thing as we pray, but it's a, it's a relational thing. We come and we pray to a Father who knows us, who loves us who is generous and kind, a father whom whom we don't have to impress or earn favour from, but a father who loves us, who's adopted us. And we said he's in heaven. Do you remember he's in heaven, the place of reigning and ruling, of power and authority? And yet, lest we're cynical, the place of righteousness. We can trust him as he reigns and he rules. He is good. He is not corrupt. He is not shady. Ours is a good God, a good Father. And we can put our lives in his hands. So that was the intro. That was last week. And we were 35 minutes in four words. Uh, We're going to have a few more words this morning. And we're jumping into the prayer itself. So do have your Bibles open. We're we're starting at the last bit of verse 9. And we're looking at the three yours this morning. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we just say that, notice that it is an extraordinary prayer for us to be praying. It's very unnatural because it shows the heart of someone whose life has been utterly turned upside down. Because it means we've realized... My life is not all about me. I'm not at the center of the universe. This is huge. This changes everything. It's very unnatural. It's something that we don't really latch onto naturally. I remember when Pete Bentley Taylor was with us over the summer. Do you remember as he came to preach to us and, and gave us a glimpse of their family life? And he, he was being honest and saying, we don't need to teach our children to be selfish. We don't need to, to say to them, will you, look, will you please stop sharing so much? Will you please stop being so kind with your toys? Will you please just think of yourself first for a moment, kids? No, no, our desire is to look after number one. 
And so as we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Foundationally, it is an extraordinary prayer because it changes our view of the world. Up until the 16th century, up until Nicholas Copernicus, everyone had believed that the earth was at the center of the universe. Everything revolved around us. And yet, really, he was the first astronomer who, who realized, who worked out we weren't at the center. Actually, the sun was at the center of the solar system. The universe didn't revolve around us, he worked out. And for the believer who prays this prayer, there's been something of that kind of revolution in our lives. We're not foundationally praying, my kingdom come, my will be done. We're praying, your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. And you will know, if you've been a Christian for a while, that that is not something you get sorted at the start and then just move on. But it's the daily battle, which is why this is a daily prayer. I think it's important for so many Christians, it can be quite a subtle thing. Frankly, God is there, but he's there as something of a life mechanic for me. And I go to him when things get messy or I need him. Or he's there as a sugar daddy who, who comes and gives us what we want and we press the right buttons and we get the goodies and everyone's happy. Our Christian life can too easily be about us at the center and our world revolving around us, including him. But that is why he begins, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's to change how we pray, obviously. When we, we're to pray for our needs, we're to pray for our forgiveness, we're to pray for our protection. They are legitimate prayers that we will see next week and they are good things to pray for. We're to pray for the daily stuff. But first of all, we pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In fact, half of the Lord's Prayer, basically, is praying for those things. And so I ask the question of myself as I ask it of you, is half of our praying for those things? I just wonder whether sometimes when I pray, basically I pray this. I pray, my Father in heaven, give me today my daily bread. And that's essentially how I get into praying. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's very convicting. The things we pray for might be good wants. They might be wants that matter. They might be the kind of things that we, we need, that the Lord wants us to pray for. But I wonder sometimes in the way we do it, are those wants showing God that we're still at the center? A number have said, as you look at the Lord's Prayer, how it seems to mirror the Ten Commandments. I'm quite struck by that. The Ten Commandments, the first four, are focused on the Lord, our relationship with the Lord, the, the vertical focus, which then leads into the horizontal, the neighbor stuff. I wonder if that is mirrored as Jesus teaches us how to pray. We start with the humble Godward focus, and then we move on. And so what we'll do is we will each one in turn, try and unpick some of these three your statements that Jesus speaks of, the things that he urges us to pray for. And like last week, and it's been really hit home to me this week, there is something of a real simplicity in it, and yet an incredible complexity as well. There are all kinds of questions that I think bubble up as we, as we 
stop and slow down and think about what he's asking us to pray for. So the first one, as you can see, hallowed be your name. And I've said this is the God we revere. The God we revere. Now names are interesting. And it strikes me, it struck me just then as Claire was explaining why they named him Jacob. But we're unusual as a church because we, or lots of the children who are born, are, are born not because the parents like the names, but they like the meaning of the names. They like what the word actually means. And I think that's a really good thing. You may well be aware that names in the Bible mean far more than they do now often. So when Jesus renames Simon Cephas, which means rock, it's a very deliberate thing. Do you see the early church growing and flourishing? You will see that to be true. He is the rock upon which the church was built. Or Ruth, for example, in the Bible means friend. And as you read through Ruth, you will see Ruth is a very good friend. It's an appropriate name for her. Names reveal lots about people in the Bible, their character, their role, what they do, the part that they play. And so when Jesus says to pray, hallowed or, or holy be your name, it's not simply that the name of God is magical in some sense. It's not simply that it's a name not to be taken for granted. The name is his character, his authority, what God is like. That's what name means in the Bible. And so he's saying, set apart are you, Lord, and all the kind of things that dive into that idea of name there. It's not simply as if we're telling God something he already knows. Holy is your name, we say. And he says, well, you're right there. Yes, it is. Chuckling at us. No, it's rather that we are reorientating lives around the concept of God being holy, respected, awesome, separate, different. Our lives, our, our all is being reshaped around him and what he is like. Initially in us, but then in the world is the prayer that we're praying for. I think part of the problem in our getting to grips with this prayer, though, with this concept of God, is that we've lost something of that all. We've lost something of his name being holy and different and wonderful. We're too familiar. Read through the Bible and you see when people come face to face with the Lord, there isn't a familiarity. There's a terror. Think of Isaiah as he, as he sees the Lord. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's what happens when you meet the Lord. Or later in the Bible you get a glimpse of the Lord on his throne, Revelation 4 and verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Or verse 11, you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. There his name is honoured and hallowed and holy and revered because he's seen for who he is. And yet we domesticate him far too easily. We shrink him into a God we can cope with and pop him in our pockets and take him along with us for the ride. And we turn to him when things are difficult. But Jesus says, as you start praying, remember who he is. 
Let this foundational truth cast its shadow over your prayer life. His name, his character, his works, his authority. He is holy, set apart. He is different. And yet as we begin to think about that kind of idea, our culture, our society, maybe we, maybe friends that we have will get a bit twitchy. And they do get twitchy. The big question is, what kind of a God is this who wants us to bow to him in that way? Is he an egomaniac? Foundationally, is this prayer a prayer to an egomaniac who needs us to revere ourselves before him. Maybe you have friends who say that. Maybe that's the kind of question you have. That lingering thing that you read in the comments thread on articles on the internet, which you should never read, and you think, hang on, how do I answer that question? Is God an egomaniac? I think it's a question we need to um, have an answer to, but I'm not going to give you an answer this morning. I'm going to give you two thoughts to begin to put together an idea in your minds that you can then perhaps work on or perhaps discuss in home groups. What kind of a God is he? Is essentially what we're coming to. What kind of a God demands our worship, our praise, our applause, our honour, who wants us to say, hallowed be your name? Two things to say. I think the first thing to say is this, and that is God does not need our worship. God does not need our worship. Please don't believe that lie that is peddled often now, that he is a needy deity. He is a needy God who is dependent upon our worship for his own self-esteem and his well-being. And when he has lots of worshippers, he feels really good about himself. And when he has few, then he gets a bit mopey and a bit low. That kind of idea is peddled often. Psalm 50, though, and verse 9, he says... I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. He is self-existent. He does not need us. That is not our role. The second thing to say is we were made to worship. So one is God does not need our worship. Let's be clear on that. But secondly, we were made to worship. And I've used this quote before, and I will apologize, but it's one of my favorites, so I'm using it again. It's by an American author who's not a believer. Um, He died a while ago, a guy called David Foster Wallace. Um, Hugely loved, admired, respected, hugely honest. He says this about worship. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he continues, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive, says Foster Wallace. If you worship money or things, if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. If you worship your own body and your beauty and your sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. 
If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, you begin by being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid as a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Isn't that striking? Here is someone who knows that we all worship, that we were made to worship. And he is completely right. The message of the Bible is... That is what we were made for. We were made to worship the God who made us. He is the one we worship. And if we worship other things, we will always end up broken. And yet one writer says this. It's as if God says to us, if you find your ultimate joy in your most cherished earthly treasure, you will be disappointed in the end, and I will be dishonored, says the Lord. But I'm offering myself to you, says the Lord. I am the all-satisfying beauty and greatness and wisdom and strength and love of the universe. I am the one you were made for, and I am telling you that. And if you see this, if you see me as your supreme treasure, then you don't have to choose between your satisfaction and my glorification. Because in the very act of you being most satisfied in me, I will be most glorified in you. Ours is not a needy, selfish, insecure, longing God, hoping that we worship him for a bit of a boost in his self-esteem, as if he has more, more likes on Facebook or something. No, no, he is the prize. As we worship him, we get him. He is the one who made us, and he is the one we were made for. He doesn't need our worship. But as we worship him, we are the people we were made to be. Which is why we begin our prayer, hallowed be your name, Lord. That is the big picture thing. And there'll be opportunity in home groups to think more about that. But the big picture will have implications at ground level. It might impact personally how we think of ourselves, how we relate to God on our own, the kind of things that we do and the things that we don't do. The idea of his name, him being hallowed, will shape the things we'll be involved in or not involved in. Maybe it will shape how we love and lead our families or we relate to spouses or the example we are to our children. It will shape how we do church together. The songs that we sing, the way that we pray, the words that we use, how we relate to God from the front. It will shape how we do life in the world. There'll be limits on what Christians will tolerate. Because the Lord's name is holy, there'll be lines that will be drawn. But we begin, hallowed be your name. The God we revere. Secondly, though, the God who rules your kingdom come. Again, though, people might get a bit twitchy here. The twitchiness being, well, hang on, kingdom denotes a powerful king, and we live in a kind of democracy, sort of. Are we okay with this sort of absolute monarchical rule? Does that resonate in our culture at the moment? Is that an okay thing for people? You look around the world, and where you see this kind of a government, it generally doesn't go that well, does it? Where you've got a king who rules and no one can question how do we feel about praying that kind of a prayer? How would our world feel about hearing us pray that kind of a prayer? How can we answer friends 
who maybe have those kind of twitchy doubts? How do we speak to ourselves if we have those kinds of thoughts? Well, initially, just to look back a bit in Matthew's gospel and our studies over the summer, we saw the gospel is about God's kingdom coming. And as we sat on the mountainside with Jesus' disciples listening to the Beatitudes, as we saw the coming of the king and his teaching to his kingdom, so we saw it wasn't an external military rule. It, it was an internal thing. It was hearts that submit to Jesus. It was people who were poor in spirit, who recognized their, their need of a savior, who recognized their brokenness. We saw it as people who, who mourn over sin, people who are meek, who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, who are peacemakers. That's what his kingdom looks like. That's the kind of kingdom we're praying for that will come. As we said last week as well, as he sits in heaven, heaven is the place of both reigning and ruling power, but also righteousness. He's kind. He's good. He's generous. And so to pray your kingdom come shouldn't make us twitchy. It should give us a humble confidence because we know what the king is like. We know what his people are like. We're to be a people who reflect his values, his character, his way of doing things, his priorities. It's an everyday life thing. And I wonder, as you pray your kingdom come, as I pray for his kingdom to come in my life, what does that mean? What does that mean as we pray that together to our Father? Rather than being a sort of generic, vague thing, what does that mean for your week? What does that look like on a Monday or a Thursday? What relationships does it affect? What kind of situations and conversations and meetings and events? Maybe there's someone you need to show mercy to. Maybe it's an opportunity for peacemaking. Maybe it's, it's allowing yourself to mourn over the brokenness of the world rather than just kind of putting up the barriers or sticking heads in sand so we don't actually engage with what's going on. Maybe it's mourning over the brokenness of our own sin, the reality of our hearts. Maybe to pray his kingdom come changes your whole focus on life. Maybe it changes your ambitions and your hopes, maybe your, your um, aspirations, your dreams. Maybe it changes your direction entirely. Not your kingdom, we're not praying for your kingdom to come here. We're praying for his kingdom to come. And the thing I find striking is that when Christians pray this kind of a prayer, when they pray for themselves to be shaped by their king, for his kingdom to come in them and through them, well, that is just what happens. The kingdom grows, not just in, in quality, but in quantity. Transformation leads to multiplication, if you like. Have a listen to this from um, the American sociologist of religion, a guy called Rodney Stark, writing in his book, The Rise of Christianity. He's trying to explain basically why the kingdom spread, as it did looking back at church history. And he says this. 
He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homelessness and the impoverished, the Christian faith offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, the Christian faith offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, the Christian faith provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, the Christian faith offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities filled with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, the Christian faith offered effective nursing services. Your kingdom come. People transformed by those kingdom values transform cultures and societies. And the faith grows and grows. And so I take it, our prayer is that his kingdom will grow in us and through us. More and more and more and more people will bow the knee to the king and they will live distinctive lives. But I take it as well, it is a prayer that looks ahead. As we say, your kingdom come, this must be a prayer that says, Jesus, come back soon. Come back soon. Would your kingdom finally come too? Will you return? Will you make all things new again? Will you, will you finally do away with sin and suffering and death forever? Can you imagine a world like that? Imagine a world where his kingdom has finally come forever. And so it must be a prayer to be at home. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Thirdly, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So thirdly, the God who reigns. The God we revere, the God who rules, and the God who reigns. And again, this is a, this is a simple prayer. But I think it's a very complicated prayer as well. And so I just want to put into a lay-by for a third time and just consider what it means, or what God's will means as you read the scriptures. I think there's a tension, there's a paradox there that will help us understand quite what it is we are praying for as we pray that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a very real sense as you read the Bible that God is utterly in charge. I don't think you can get around that. It causes all kinds of questions for us but he is sovereign and he reigns. And yet you look at the cross, for example, and we ask the question, was the cross part of God's will? Did God want the cross to happen? Did he want brutal, mindless, violent, unjust suffering to happen to his son? Did he want this kind of suffering that made him angry? Did he want to be grieved in that way that he never had been before? And in one sense, you want to say, well, of course, the cross wasn't part of God's will. Of course, he didn't want that. How could he want such evil? But then at the same time, we have to say, well, yes, of course it was. It was always part of the plan. God is, God is sovereign in such a way that he doesn't diminish or negate human responsibility and evil and yet through it, he uses it in such a way that it can never be attributed to him. There's a discussion for home groups. But he's sovereign in such a way that he's, 
he scoops up and uses the evil behavior of human beings and yet brings it into his plans and purposes. He, Luke puts it this way in Acts, looking back at the cross. This man, this Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And there is a mystery there, there is an interplay there, but you've both got wicked men and yet God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So sometimes people say, well, as you think about God's will in the Bible, and well done if you're still tracking with me, but as you think about God's will in the Bible, you've got this will of command and this will of decree. The will of command is God's will, his desires for people, his desires that you should not murder, you should not lie, you should not deceive, you should not steal. The way he wants us to live, his commands. But then as well as that, you've got his decree, his, his sovereign will, it's sometimes put. God's ability to bring to pass all that happens. And so as we pray, your will be done in the Lord's Prayer, I take it it's both. It's the two of them. It's his commands being perfectly obeyed no lying, no murder, no deception, no stealing. And yet it's his decrees perfectly coming to pass as well. It's his sovereign will being lived out. And us being aligned with that sovereign will. As we pray, your will be done. And that maybe that means praying for praying for his kind, perfect rule to be utterly lived out in our lives. It may mean that we say, not my will, but your be done, as we stand with Jesus, who patiently surrenders himself to the will of the Father at the cross in loving, humble submission. It may mean that here on earth we say, not my will, but yours be done, and we see lives transformed because of the generous Father working out his plans and purposes. Maybe it means us standing alongside Christ, saying, Lord, I don't understand, but I'm going to pray for your will to be done in me and through me. It's a big prayer to pray. It's an extraordinary prayer. It's a prayer that might lead to suffering and hardships and difficulties, but to good It's a prayer that calls us to the daily pattern of cross-shaped obedience. Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. It's a question of surrendering our lives to him, every little nook and cranny. All the doors that we keep shut and won't let him in. It's beginning to open those doors and to say, okay, in here, not my will, but yours be done. The way I relate to this person, not my will, but yours be done. The way I spend my money, not my will, but yours be done. The things I watch on TV, the things I go on the internet for, whatever it might be, not my will, but yours be done. And so we might pray, Lord, your will be done in Oxford as it is in heaven. And that our loving Father would, would allow us to be a part of his sovereign plan. 
and that his will would be done. So I hope you see, maybe you sense something in the way I've wrestled with it this week. This is a very simple prayer. But actually it's very complicated as well. And more than that, it is very challenging if we pray it with our hearts engaged. Now as we finish, it's been an Olympic year. So I thought I'd end with this guy. A famous Scottish sprinter, Eric Little. It's funny, autocorrect wants to make Eric Little like the supermarket, but that's not how you spell his surname if you want to Google him. Eric Little, famous for the Chariots of Fire, um, famous particularly in the film there for not running on a Sunday, so he wouldn't run 100 metres on a Sunday and so ended up doing 400 metres. And... But what happened next in his life is the thing I'd like us to focus on as we finish. He stepped out of the Olympic limelight and he went to be a missionary in China. No more competing for, for races or medals or prizes, at least earthly prizes, but he went to be something of an anonymous missionary. And sadly, he died age 43 of a brain tumour. But if you read about him, you will see how incredibly faithful he was, how incredibly fruitful his ministry was in many ways. He was an extraordinary man, but he wasn't a superhuman man in any way. And so people have asked, what was the secret? What was the secret of Eric Little? What can we learn for ourselves for this week, for the month ahead, for the year ahead, for the rest of our lives? And various people ask various questions, but one of the um, biographers writing about his, his funeral, he quotes the address from his funeral, from Little's funeral, and he says there was one secret, and that was this. Absolute surrender. That those were the words often on his lips. That was the conception, the idea, always in his mind, in all that he did that God should have absolute control over every part of his life. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in me and through me. And just imagine what kind of church we would be if we were a church that prayed like that, just imagine a community of people who, who had that kind of priority shaping us at the heart of who we were. A church characterized by that. Absolute surrender to the will of God. In every tiny little bit of our lives, no bit that we exclude him from. No door that we keep locked up. A church where we put self and pride and flesh to death and where we love our Father in heaven so much that we long to live for him where we long for his name to be hallowed, respected, holy, where we long for his kingdom to come, where we long for his will to be perfectly done in us, in Oxford, as it is in heaven. Can you imagine the impact? Can you imagine the impact that we might make for him to be a church like that? Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Don't you long to be that kind of a Christian? Don't you long to be a part of that kind of a church? Well, let's pray together now. Father, we confess to you that the way that our, our hearts, ourselves, seek to be back at the center again. 
where we care too much about our kingdom and our will and our name and not enough about yours. And so we long that you would be at work in us. We long that we would be shaped by your glory, goodness, that our lives would revere you. And we long that you would rule and reign increasingly in us, but in your world as well that's turned its back on you. Change us, we pray. Guard us from simply going through the motions as we, as we wrestle with these words for half an hour on a Sunday morning, but be at work in us. Might we be those like little who surrender all to you, in your king's precious name, and as the one who indeed surrendered all. Yet not our will, but your will, Lord.